Please turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. That will be our sermon text for this morning, focusing really on verses 9 through 10, but we'll read verses 7 through 10. And before uh, we read that, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you uh, for your love in your Son, Jesus. Uh, Father, we thank you for the grace that you show us day by day. We thank you for your word uh, by which we, we know of the greatness of your love. And we pray, Father, that you would open our hearts now, that we would understand your word, that we would uh, receive it, believe it, trust you because of it, and that we would walk more fully in light of it in the world in a way that brings glory and honor to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Corinthians chapter 12, uh, starting in verse 7. So, to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do you have what it takes? It's kind of an odd question because uh, the answer is, well, it depends. Uh, Do I have what it takes for what? Do I have what it takes to sit through this sermon? I hope you do. Or do I have what it takes to be the MVP in this year's Super Bowl? Probably not. Recently in my life, I have been in circles where sort of a, a motivational speaker approach to life is pretty common. You know, you can do this. You have what it takes. Look within, find the strength, and and accomplish your goals. And to be fair, uh, within the limited context in which I hear such things, what the speaker is saying is normally true. The person can do what they are being asked to do. Uh, But what about this as a total life philosophy? And how do we even understand these more limited applications in a kind of theologically robust way? Well, as a life philosophy, and I hope to show even in more limited applications, this statement you have what it takes within yourself, is false. Now, my goal here is not to be a demotivational speaker. In in fact, I hope that you will feel more motivated by the end of the sermon and more empowered by the end of the sermon, despite the fact, and actually even because of the fact, that you don't have what it takes within yourself. We're going to look at at three things here, roughly following the same pattern we've seen each week. We'll see that this lie is destructive, 
promoting pride and condescension and despair. We'll see that this lie distorts the reality of God-given strengths and resources. And we'll see that this lie denies the necessity of Christ's power at work in our weakness. So first, this lie is destructive. This lie is destructive, promoting pride and condescension and despair. Why is it destructive? Well, if this is my life philosophy, if I think that I have what it takes within myself to face whatever life throws at me, this easily leads to at least one of three things, uh, an inflated view of self, low thoughts of others, or wallowing in self-pity, guilt, or despair. Uh, let's, let's see that. So first, an inflated view of self, and maybe most obviously self-reliance that goes along with that. You see, you see self-reliance in a number of places in Scripture, and where there is self-reliance, there's uh, uh, the lie that you can do it on your own is always lurking in the background. I rely on myself because I think I can do it. In Luke 18, verse 9, Jesus told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. They thought that they had what it takes to gain righteousness. Or in James 4, verses 13 and 14, James says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. See, they thought they could control their future. James says, you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow, much less can you control it. In a parable of the, the man whose land produced so much that he had to build bigger barns to hold it all, he thought he could secure his future. He said, I have much laid up for many years. But God is in control, uh, especially of who lives and who dies. And so he could not control one day of his future. Self-reliance, of course, quickly becomes pride, right? The, the classic examples of this are in the Old Testament, the Gentile kings uh, throughout the Old Testament. To Pharaoh, God says in Ezekiel 29, behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams that says, my Nile is my own. I made it for myself. What arrogance the Pharaoh must have had to say such a thing. Or Nebuchadnezzar, who is brutally honest when he says foolishly in Daniel 4, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. You see, when we act in self-reliance and pride, what do we do? We don't, we don't turn to God for strength. We don't give Him thanks or praise Him or think highly of Him for things that happen in life, which, of course, weakens our relationship with Him. And so this lie that I can do it on my own leads to an inflated view of self and therefore a low view of God. And it leads to low thoughts of others as well. I mean, that, that might mean unhealthy competition, right? Human strength is a, a limited commodity after all. And so if the race is to the swift or the battle to the strong, then I've got to be faster, stronger, richer, more persuasive than you. If you are faster, stronger, richer, you are competition, or worse, you're simply in my way. Or this lie might lead to me looking down on others, right? If I see myself as pretty competent, strong, smart, winsome, while you are incapable or weak or boorish, I will look down on you, perhaps pitying, perhaps despising, but in either case, belittling the people around me. Or what about if things don't go my way? 
Uh, if life hasn't gone my way, if things have not gone as I planned, and I still see myself as having what it takes, then I need someone to blame. And so I begin to look, to look for scapegoats around me. If it's not my fault, well, it must be your fault. I could have done something. I could have been somebody. I could have achieved or built or succeeded, but someone else got in my way. And so seeing oneself as competent, having what it takes, tends to lead to an inflated view of self, low thoughts of others, or this lie leads us to third, to wallow in self-pity, guilt, or despair. Uh, You you see this a couple times in Scripture, people wallowing in self-pity. Maybe you remember Jonah who wallows in self-pity because God had mercy on the Ninevites. Or or Ahab who wallows in self-pity because Naboth won't sell him his vineyard. And you see, we wallow in self-pity when when things don't go our way and we see everything as out of our hands. If it's your fault, right, if I blame you, then pity poor me because there's nothing I can do about it. Again, I, maybe I could have done something, perhaps, but it's out of my hands, and so there's nothing left to do but wallow. And yet, we don't all wallow in self-pity. Uh, sometimes we wallow in guilt. Uh, this is when I blame not you, but, but me. Uh, think about how this lie leads to guilt. If I have what it takes within myself to shape my life however I want, but things don't go my way, I have no one to blame but myself. I could have done something. I, I should have done something, but I didn't. And so I wallow. This is not the real guilt of sin, of course, but the false guilt of thinking I could have or should have shaped the world to fit my wishes, but I failed. The only God I have crossed is the God of my own desires. And so this lie might lead us to wallow in self-pity or guilt or even despair. At some point, if we believe the lie that we have what it takes within ourselves, but life keeps grinding against us, if things consistently break down, if our paths keep going where we don't want, at some point I just have to think, well, maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe I'm defective. Maybe others have what it takes within themselves, but but not me. And so I give up and despair. And so I might feel sorry for or blame or despair of self. This, this lie leads to an inflated view of self, low thoughts of others, and wallowing in self-pity, guilt, or despair. Now, there's something that I should say at this point that's kind of an aside, but it, and it deserves more time than I can give it. But when, when life does leave us, lead in this direction, where everything seems to go wrong, where everything seems to break down, we need to see that, that God, God breaks us for a purpose, meaning he breaks our pride, our self-reliance for a purpose, not so we can wallow, but so we can grow. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 to 9. He says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction, so not something Paul wanted, to be sure. We do not want you to be unaware of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength. Paul didn't have what it took within himself. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired. Paul the Apostle, despairing. Despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. See, there was purpose in the trial. Purpose in the, in the failure, in the affliction, in the challenges. And remember, Paul's afflictions were not small by our standards 
They involved false accusations, beatings, imprisonment, betrayal, and more. But Paul says that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So this lie, I have what it takes within myself, is destructive. It, it, it promotes pride, it promotes condescension, it promotes despair. But second, this lie distorts the reality of God-given strengths. Uh, remember, all of these lies that we've been looking at over the past several weeks, they're all distortions of something true. Uh, Satan is not an artist. He's not original. He's not creative. He doesn't create bad things. He twists good things into bad shapes. What do we need to see about God-given strengths? Uh, first, we need to see, yes, we, we, we all have God-given strengths, and we are called to steward those God-given strengths. But God-given strengths only bear fruit if God blesses them. So first, we all have God-given strengths and resources. This is one way that we reflect the image of God in the world. He is powerful, and we have been given created power, strengths, resources, abilities, skills. These reflect God's power in the world and are a part of being made in his image. Our acting in the world reflects God's ability to act. Our, our speech reflects God's ability to communicate. Our industry and creative arts reflects God's creativity and ingenuity. Our strengths reflect God's strengths, and God is the source of all strength, all resources. And so in a, in a lengthy prayer, David recognizes that as he begins to gather resources for building the temple, he, he prays like this. He says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. See, David recognizes every, everything, every ability, every resource, every strength we have comes from God, is a gift from him. All of us have some gifts. Uh, it may not always be obvious what that gift is. Uh, a, a few of us have had some conversations about the recent Disney movie, Encanto. And in that movie, everyone has a gift for the most part. Uh, and for most, it is obvious what their gift is. But for one individual... She has no gift and spends the movie searching, as it were, for her gift, her place in the world. And you can go watch the movie and let me know what you think it is in the end. But I'm not entirely sure, actually, what the moral of that story is. But you might conclude this. Everyone has a gift, even if not all gifts are as flashy and obvious as others. Um, this is true of every human being on the planet. Everyone is given gifts and resources from God. And this is especially true in the church. Uh, Peter tells us uh, that each has received a gift in 1 Peter 4. And Paul compares the church body to the physical body, where some are hands and some are feet and some are eyes and some are a nose, etc. Each has their own role. Each has something they bring to the table. We all have God-given strengths and resources and we are all called to use those God-given strengths and resources, to steward them. That is, we must use those strengths, step out into the world in, in that strength, the strength that God supplies. 
We must use our gifts to bless the world. Again, 1 Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. To steward is to be uh, entrusted with something and then use it wisely as the entruster would have you. Wisely stewarding gifts to bless others in obedience to God is what Scripture calls being faithful. So 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 2 uh, says, This is how one should regard us, Paul says, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Or in Matthew 24, we see something similar. Jesus says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Or or in Matthew 25, the parable of the talents, to those entrusted with the talents who made good use of them, the master says in Matthew 25, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So we we all have God-given strengths and resources. We're called to steward those God-given strengths and resources, to use them for God's purposes wisely and faithfully, blessing those around us. But those God-given strengths only bear fruit if God blesses them. Ecclesiastes is realistic over the the limitations of created powers. In Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 9, verse 11, the writer says, Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. Or in Amos chapter 2, God promises judgment on Israel, and he says, Flight shall perish from the swift. And the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. Why is it? Uh, Why is it that the strong don't always win the battle? Ecclesiastes says time and chance, right? Because there's a mystery here, the mystery of God's providence. But Psalm 127 puts it this way, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for God gives to his beloved sleep. We spend so much time and energy seeking to use our strengths to attain, to build, to protect, to succeed, to graduate. But if God's not in it, it's all in vain. Why do we spend so many late nights at work? Why do we, why do we burn the midnight oil, as we say? Often because we're seeking to attain or achieve by our strength. But unless God is in it, our work is in vain. This is why God says in Jeremiah 9, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. See, our our strengths in themselves will get us nowhere. So, you know, don't boast in your hard work and your intelligence and your creativity and your beauty and your humor or money or wisdom or strength. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. 
Oh, what does that mean? It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean you deny your strengths or you don't use them, right? It doesn't mean you deny your strengths and it doesn't mean you don't labor, but it means the fruit of your labor is a gift from God. If you study and get a good grade, that, that grade is a gift from God. If you work and get a raise, that raise is a gift from God. If you pursue a girl and she finally relents, her friendship is a gift from God. You don't have what it takes within you, but even what you do have, as great as it might be, and it might be great, I'm not denying that, but even what you do have, one, is God's gift itself, and two, can accomplish nothing apart from his blessing. So whatever you have accomplished in life, that is a gift from your father. And so this lie, it's destructive because on the one hand, it promotes pride and condescension and despair. And on the other hand, it distorts the reality, the real nature of God-given strengths and resources. Finally, this lie denies the necessity of Christ's power at work in our weakness. Again, we've kind of meandered our way to our text. I'm I'm trying to give you the the big picture, the nuanced picture of the lies and truths that we're looking at over these six weeks. And in 2 Corinthians chapters 11 and 12, Paul is boasting in his weakness. He says that in in chapter 11, verse 30, in 12, verse 5, and 12, verse 9, that, that he's boasting in his weaknesses. And initially, it's not clear why anyone would boast in their weaknesses, Paul's rivals are clearly boasting in their strengths, their pedigree, their calling, their hard work. Paul says he has all these things and more, but the more is more imprisonments, more beatings, more shipwrecks, sleepless nights, hunger, and anxiety. Paul boasts at one point in the fact that he ran away. Now, I don't know about you, but I do my best to hide my weaknesses or at least not advertise them. Why does Paul boast? Paul recounts a heavenly vision at one point, which that seems boastworthy. But in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, he says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Notice he said to keep me from becoming conceited twice. Uh, which is often what we need, isn't it? Now, we have no idea what this thorn was. Uh, Perhaps uh, speculations abound, right, Uh, uh, all trying to read something out of the text. It it, might have been some physical ailment or temptation or opposition. We don't know, but whatever the case, it it made Paul's life difficult, and it made Paul weak. And so 2 Corinthians 12, 8 to 10, Paul says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, as an aside, let me say, uh, this is the second most famous unanswered prayer. Uh, Not that there is such a thing as unanswered prayer, but that the answer Paul gets is clearly no. Paul three times pleads with the Lord, take this from me, the Apostle Paul, and God says no. What do we learn about strength and power from these verses? Well, three things. 
that Christ's power is made perfect in our weakness, that Christ's power is therefore sufficient in our weakness, and that Christ's power comes through acceptance of our weaknesses. First, Christ's power is made perfect in our weakness. There's a great story in the book of Judges about Gideon. Gideon has an army of 32,000 men. He's going out to fight uh, in order to rescue God's people. And God says to Gideon that, that he has too many people. He has too many men in his army. Too many people because Israel may boast, saying, my own hand has saved me. And so God whittles down Gideon's army to 300 men. Why does he do that? Because if 32,000 men fight and win, that's not impressive. Their superior numbers won the day. But if 300 men fight and win, well, only God could do that. God's power shines forth in our weakness. Now, that doesn't mean we, again, we give up learning or training or striving. It means we do all things consciously dependent upon God's spirit. And we're not afraid to come to the end of our rope because we know that that is exactly where God likes to show up. How can we be sure that this is the way things work? How can we be sure that God's power is made perfect in weakness? Well, we just look to the cross, right? Jesus died in weakness, Paul says. He who had all power in heaven took on human flesh, became a man, was born as a baby, and he went to the cross and died in weakness. And then, of course, he rose by the power of God. See, our Savior Savior saved us through weakness, and in that displays God's power. First, in that by the cross, by the weakness of dying, he redeems the world. And second, in that after the cross comes the crown. So Christ's power is made perfect in our weakness. That's the way God works. Second, Christ's power is therefore sufficient in our weakness. Our question when we face whatever trouble before us is is never, do I have what it takes? But is God's power sufficient here? Can God do this? And here's how Paul puts it about his own ministry in 2 Corinthians 3. He says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. And Paul wanted the removal of the thorn in the flesh, but Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is enough. I can see you through this, whatever it is. Jesus says to Paul, you don't need power or money or connections. You just need me. I will see you through. You might ask, okay, fine, but, but how, right? How does Christ's power work? I mean, there's no button, right? There's no, there's no switch. There's no app where you can turn it on and off. We're not in control of when and where and how God shows up. Paul tells us to pursue God's power because Christ's power comes through the acceptance of our weakness. Um, Therefore, Paul says in the end of verse 9, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, if you want the the power of Christ to work in and through you, again, there's no switch. You can't control God, but you do have to accept and be honest about your own weakness. You've got to know your limits, your weaknesses, your failures, right? We we are limited in our time, in our abilities, in our maturity, in our energy. We must familiarize ourselves and accept and be honest about our limits and our weaknesses, 
Not so we can give up, but so that we can live in dependence upon our Father in heaven, upon God's power at work in our weakness. Again, this this isn't to deny your strength, your God-given abilities and gifts. We don't have to pretend that we are weak when we are strong. What do we do then? We we don't deny our strengths. We, We contextualize them. Our strengths are gifts from God. If we are strong, it is with the strength that God supplies. Our strengths only work if God blesses them, unless the Lord builds the house, the the workman labors in vain. Our strengths are ultimately weaknesses unless Jesus fills them with his strength. Jesus says, apart from him, we can bear no fruit. We can do nothing. Well, what does all this look like? What does God's power at work in our weakness look like from our end? Uh, Just as in the first week of this series, we saw that wisdom for creatures is not to have all the answers, but to be humble enough to listen and to learn. Power is not to have strength in yourself, but to, to depend on God in our weakness. True strength looks like dependence. We enter weakness in order to gain strength, just as Christ entered death in order to gain resurrection. That begins, of course, with proper boasting. Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. The more I grow comfortable with my weaknesses, the more I pursue dependence upon God's power. But it doesn't end there, right? Dependence upon the Spirit always looks like prayer, right? Prayerlessness is functional independence. Dependence of heart spills out through our lips as we call out to God for help and for strength. And yet there's still more, right? If we're seeking to live dependently in in dependence upon God, that will look like dependence on his people as well, depending on one another. God, God hasn't saved us out of the world and out onto our own. He has saved us out of the world and into the church. We are part of the family of God, and we must be more willing to depend on one another. We all are the body of Christ. We need one another, one another's gifts. So you must be getting to know others in the body, spending time with them, learning one another's weaknesses and strength so that we can come alongside one another and see God's power at work in and through us as a church. One of the simple ways in which we do that, of course, is, is you know, in many churches where you, you become a part of a small group. Um, it's not the magical end-all, be-all that some make it out to be, but it's one good way of really becoming a part of the family of God and learning to live in dependence upon that family. And, it, you know, if you're not a part of a s- small group, that's fine. I would say that's okay, but uh, then ask you, well, how are you living in dependence upon God through his church? What does that look like in your life? So we rely on God's power by boasting in our weaknesses, by praying for the Spirit's help, and depending on the Father by depending on his children. So then how can you move forward? Uh, Well, if you're like me, then you need at least to begin to repent of depending on your own strengths. Repent of seeking to boast in your own power or seeking to manipulate others or or using the powers of this age. Uh, Repent of posturing, boasting, seeking to groom the powers of this age in a spirit of self-reliance. And we need to believe, believe in and rest in God's power at work in our weakness as seen in the cross and the resurrection. You know, if we were to reword this lie to to make it true, right, the lie is I have what it takes within myself, the the truth is God's power is made perfect in my weakness. So while I am not sufficient in myself to claim anything as coming from me, my sufficiency comes from God. So that even when we face death itself, we rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Let's pray. 
Our Father, there's so much that we don't know and don't understand, but we pray that you would teach us to rely on you, rely on you in our ignorance, rely on you in our weakness, uh, rely on you in our confusion. Um, Father, help us to look to you, trust in you, rely on you, depend on you in a way that your strength, your glory is seen in the midst of our weakness. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.